Morning, everyone. Morning. Saw Emma run away from me like I was an unclean leper. <laughs> it is fantastic to be back after our little COVID trial, and uh, we are in the clear. We're not contagious, but thank you so much for your prayers and uh, for your meals and uh, your concern. Uh, this thing is real. It's no joke. Uh, as I try and get my notes to not blow away. But uh, it's just delightful to be back. Man, so strengthened from in-person worship. There's just nothing like it. We enjoyed worshiping online very much, but there's nothing like being with the people of God. So thank you, Southlands and friends and visitors, for coming out. I know at times like this we've got to be cautious, but we've also got to be courageous. Thank you so much for doing that. Yeah, thank you. So appreciate it. Um, and uh, I'm just going to continue our uh, Weary World Rejoices series and uh, take my cue from Miss Emma. Those images of being vulnerable were just so super helpful. And we are exploring uh, the second verse in particular of this magnificent hymn, O Holy Night. And... Uh, I think it's, it's just worth mentioning we don't see this hymn as Bible. This is biblical theology, and so we're going to hold it up next to a Bible text and go, what does this mean for us that Jesus in all our trials was born to be our friend? He knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. What does it mean that Jesus is no stranger to our weakness? What does it mean to lowly before him bend? And I want to ask you to follow uh, in your little sermon summary notes. Hello, Nora. It's great to see you. Is that Nora? Maybe it's not. Um, I've got my sunglasses on. Sorry, sweetie. Uh, <laughs> Nora's there. Hello, Nora. Good to see you. Nora's twin up there. Um, I don't know if you know who actually wrote this hymn. But it, it was written in 1846 by a French winemaker named Placide Capot. And I could not believe it. I had to do a bunch of research because I didn't believe it. But he was actually an atheist. And he wrote it in French because his priest in the village asked him to write a song for Christmas and heard that he was gifted with poetry. And so he went through the Gospels and came up with this absolute masterpiece. And it was translated into English by a universalist, uh, which is just someone who believes that all roads lead to God. So written by an atheist, translated by a universalist, and put to music by a Jewish person. Isn't that bizarre? And I don't even know quite what to make of that, you know, some people say even a broken clock tells the time correctly twice a day. Uh, and, and it can be that, that actually God is just choosing to reveal His glory through people who don't know Him. But I hazard a guess that actually this is an example of what we're going to read about, that God delights to draw people to Him who are far from Him. He delights. And we're going to read about the Magi, the wise men, because that's what this hymn talks about, that now come the wise men from out of the Orient land. 
and they bow before him. And we're going to read about these strange, mysterious men. Commentators say they came from somewhere in the region of Iraq and traveled by camel most likely for days and days following the star. And they recognized, and these men were astrologers telling the future by reading the stars in a very similar way that a fortune teller on Brea Boulevard would tell the future by reading your palm. And they were held at arm's length by the Jewish people. They were seen as outside of the blessings of the family of God. And yet God chose to have them an integral part of the story. And I just want to say, man, if you're here and you're saved, you love Jesus, I'm really trusting that the Holy Spirit who inspired this word would illuminate it afresh. That you wouldn't sit and just say, I've heard this. The challenge of a preacher is that you're preaching a book that everyone thinks they've read. And actually, as we return to these, we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate afresh. You might be seeking like these wise men, and I'm praying and trusting that the light of Christ would shine into your heart and that you would realize that actually, no matter how far off we feel, Jesus loves to draw us near to himself. So let's read from Matthew 2 while my notes blow away. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So we are uh, asking the question, what does it mean that Jesus, through many trials, is no stranger to our weakness, and therefore an incredible friend? Not just a king, but a lowly king and an incredible friend. Well, I think first uh, we need to understand from this passage that the lowly circumstances, the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth signified the kind of king that he was. That he didn't come in pomp and ceremony. That he wasn't appearing in the temple or in the palace but rather in this rural, dirty, dusty, poopy stable, lying in a manger. That word manger in Spanish and French comes from the word manger, which means to eat. That he was lying in a place where cattle and sheep and donkeys ate and put their spittle all over this manger. It wasn't sanitary. Isn't it amazing that this is a moment when God becomes flesh, when God draws near, that God does not practice social distancing. And while we do in some way, the Advent, Christmas is the celebration that God actually was lowly and approachable. And we see in particular that he reveals himself to these blue-collar shepherds who were outcast because they were seen as unclean, and then reveals himself to the Magi who were Gentiles, who were seen as evil and immoral, and were seen as sorcerers. In Jewish law, sorcerers were to be put to death. But yeah, God says, actually, I'm approachable, and I'm revealing myself through the star to these men. How amazing. You guys, I I want us to see that this was a lowly baby lying in a manger, but all of the stars were aligning to show that this was not just any baby. This was the king of the heavens, the ruler and creator of the heavens and the earth, that God was with us. And the lowly circumstances of Jesus' birth points to the lowly character of, of Jesus as a king. Matthew 11, as a man, he would describe himself. And he described himself as many things, but there was this moment when he was like, if you want to know what I am like, he says, I am lowly and gentle. Isn't that amazing? You think how you introduce yourself to the world in your resume, on Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, What are you like? That one line. And Jesus' one line was, I am gentle and lowly in spirit. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and learn from me because I'm gentle and lowly in spirit. And so the lowly circumstances of his birth pointed to his humble, lowly character. And ultimately that speaks of Jesus' approachability that God revealed in the Old Testament was holy and lived in unapproachable light. 
But God, knowing that an unholy people would never be able to approach a holy God, actually came to us and said, through Jesus, God is approachable. Ronell and I and the family spent the last two weeks watching online. And man, we just have such a fresh appreciation for Joel and for Jeremy in the back and Rachel and Sam and, and Becky who are just helping and the band helping to make the online story just so quality. Thank you. Can we give it up for them? Just amazing. Excellent. We were so blessed, although it's nothing like actually being with you in the flesh, but we were remarking that even through this beautiful Advent backdrop that Melinda and Katrina have put up. Thank you so much, Melinda, with the little puppy. Let's give it up for her. And uh, just amazing watching, but actually watching through the preacher, through the worship, one guy walking out of the sandwich shop at Togo's and another person walking their dog and sirens as ambulances went past. And we're just saying, this is amazing that it feels like church is exposed and vulnerable. And we don't all like that because actually we've got to put up umbrellas and put our sunshades on and, you know, we get a little bit burned and, man, this is uncomfortable because we've got a perfect auditorium inside there. And I know that it can feel unjust at times, but I want to encourage us, Southlands, that as the church meets in vulnerable ways, the Lord is wanting us to remember the very first Christian worship service, which was incredibly vulnerable. And people who were dark and dirty and outside of the people of faith actually found that God was approachable. And what are, one of the things I've just found is that people walking past and driving past here will stop and join us in ways that they didn't when we were inside. Do I long to be inside? Absolutely. But God is at work in reminding us that Jesus' glory is not dependent upon a building. Amen. Jesus is glorious enough to show us that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords in the middle of a stable, in the middle of a car park, in a tent. I love beautiful buildings. Ronell and I did this incredible tour around Europe for our 25th anniversary. And we, we were just absolutely gobsmacked by the beauty and the grandeur and the transcendence of these cathedrals. And we actually arrived in Rome on the day of the Epiphany, which was the celebration of the gospel coming to the Gentiles through the Magi. And we sang with thousands of people in the Vatican Square. Silent night, holy night. And it was an amazing reminder that the gospel came to the Gentiles. I love the grandeur of buildings, but Jesus does not need grand buildings to show us that he is grand. Amen. And I believe that Jesus in the church here in California, as much as we may feel that this is unjust, is reminding us that his glory can be revealed in church car parks and in tents, amen, amen. and online. He is not limited He's the God who is glorious. So let's continue to pivot. And if we need to stand up and say, no, the government has gone too far, we will do that. We've done it before. We'll do it again. But we will work with our humble king to say, Lord, help us to be a humble, approachable, and agile people. Let me just tell you a secret about the reputation of the church in Orange County around the world. 
The church in Orange County has some of the most famous preachers, worship leaders, and churches and authors anywhere in the world. If you go anywhere in the world, they know all about our amazing facilities and buildings. They don't know that much about our rugged, humble, sacrificial faith. It's not really what we're known for. Now, there's some notable exceptions, but could it be that God is actually changing the reputation of the church in Southern California? And He's saying, you'll go back into your buildings, but right now I want to work in you a ruggedness, a humility, an approachability, a flexibility that's actually going to stand you in good stead in years to come. When perhaps in 10 years time, the people will look back on the class of 2020 and say, they look more like those first worshipers around Jesus' stable. Jesus is at work, beloved. And we will go in there, hopefully sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, let's trust that God's glory can be revealed out here. Amen? Amen. Secondly, what we see is we see this beautiful approachability of Jesus, that He's no stranger to our weakness because He was born vulnerable, as Miss Emma said. And I love reflecting on this truth at Christmas because for me, it never gets old. I just want you to hear the last few verses of this passage. It talks about the fear of Joseph. It talks about them fleeing as refugees to Egypt and then Herod dying. Imagine the day when, you, when Joseph heard Herod dying. Oh, at last, this tyrant, mad, murderous king has died and now we can go home, but he's still afraid. And it says, heard that now Archelaus, a new king, was reigning over Judea. In place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, going like, uh, maybe the son is just as bad as the father, which he was. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. I want you to think about this. The creator of the heavens and the earth, having to flee with his parents from a mad king that he had created, made himself vulnerable to his own creation, made himself dependent upon the protection of his father and mother, dependent upon the sustenance of his mother, sharing in the flesh and blood frailty that we all feel of fear and uncertainty and what's gonna leap out of the dark next. And can you imagine Jesus, who fully God would never have known the emotion of fear until he left heaven and was willingly put in a family led by a fearful dad. And I'm not pointing fingers at Joseph. You and I would have been fearful too. And actually Jesus raised at the dinner table with Joseph going, there's a knock on the door. We've got to flee for our lives out the back door. This is the uncertainty and the disruption in which Jesus was willingly raised. And then when Herod died, Joseph returns being warned in a dream back to a place called Nazareth, a podunk one horse town where you basically just go to be a fugitive. You go to hide out there. And we know this because 
It was so despised as a town. Jesus' disciples literally insulted him saying, what good thing could come out of Nazareth? It's like growing up in Visalia. And one of my closest friends lives there. So I'm, you know, I actually love Visalia. But, but it was like, what, what good thing could come out of Visalia? There's that old hymn that we sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I never really got that until I allowed this verse to rest on my soul. Being a Nazarene was that he chose to be a local in a place that everyone despised, a place that you go to hide. That the creator of the heavens and the earth grew up in a refugee, fugitive family. Have you thought about that? What does that mean? It means he is no stranger to weakness, to vulnerability, to fear, to uncertainty, to fleeing for his life. We love to talk about the strength of Jesus and he is mighty, but here he made himself weak. In fact, Hebrews 5, unpacking this passage says that Jesus clothed himself in weakness, willingly. It's like he took up a cloak, a coat of weakness and he put it on. Not just a moment, he actually put on weakness and wore it as a man. I saw this, this little meme this week that made me chuckle. And it was a meme of Mary trying to bath Jesus as a baby. And there's Jesus in the bathtub, but he's walking along the water. And Mary's saying, now sink, sink. And he's like, no, I'm just walking. And I think very often we don't apprehend this beautiful sympathetic friend because we think he just walked on water through life. But this shows us he did not walk on water. There was a moment when by faith he did, but actually growing up, he was submerged in the storm and the ocean of fear and weakness and vulnerability. Think on that. And Hebrews 5 continues to say, Jesus was clothed in weakness. And then it goes on in Hebrews 6 to say, we do not have a God who is unsympathetic with our weakness, but one who was tempted and tried in every way and yet without sin. In other words, Jesus dove into the ocean of frailty, weakness, and vulnerability, but actually with the help of the Father and the Spirit was able, even though he was tempted by fear, tempted to despair, tempted to doubt his father, tempted sexually, tempted with hunger, tempted by the devil, tempted in every way, he was able to stand strong. And therefore you and I, in our weakness, have not just a sympathetic friend, but a mighty one. How have you realized this year that you're not as strong as you think you are? I've spoken about this before, but it bears repeating that I've realized, man, I'm so limited in my ability to predict the future. How about you? I'm limited in my ability to be strong for my family. How about you? I'm limited in my decision-making capacity. How about you? Decision after decision, decision fatigue. I'm limited in my ability to remain buoyant and joyful in disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. I'm limited in my ability 
to make head or tail of the political nonsense that's out there. How about you? Man, if we've ever acknowledged our weakness, it's this year. And I wanna say, beloved, that is a gift to you and I because Jesus says, come to me because I'm lowly and I'm gentle and I will not push you away. I will not criticize you. I will not judge you. I will welcome you. The verse that has probably fortified me more than any this year is Hebrews 7 that builds on Hebrews 5. He clothed himself in weakness. He was tempted in every way. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. And then Hebrews 7 is the crown and glory. He says, and therefore he's able to save completely those who come to him because he always lives to intercede for us. If you take one thing away, I want you to take this away. That Jesus, as a sympathetic friend, tempted and tried in weakness, is praying for you. I think so much of the Christian faith talks about what Jesus has done. And it's glorious. It's the foundation. He lived a perfect life. He died in undeserved death in our place, bearing the judgment and wrath of God and giving us life. He rose again triumphantly. But what is he doing now, Southlands? What is Jesus doing now? Hebrews 7 is, he is always praying for us. Let that land. Heather, he is praying for you. Matt, he's praying for you right now. Rachel, Jim, is praying for you. Abby, praying for you right now. Robert Murray McChain said, if we could hear Jesus praying for us in the next door room, we wouldn't fear an army of a million soldiers. But distance does not make a difference. He is praying for you. I want you as a statement of faith to say this with me. Jesus, thank you that you are always praying for me. And if you are not saved, if you've not put your faith in him, man, do, because you want this sympathetic friend praying for you. Because even the best friends will pray for a bit and then forget, not this one. And there's such a temptation in this day and age to say, Jesus, you don't understand my weakness, my temptation, my struggle. My friend Bullus in the first meeting reminded us of Isaiah 40 where it says, do not say that my way is hidden from God. Do not say that my cause is disregarded by God. But God sits enthroned, Isaiah 40, above the circle of the earth. And he gives strength to the weak. Even the young men stumble and faint, but they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings as eagles. None of us are ever to say, my cause is disregarded by God. I'm tempted to say that, so are you. Do not say my way is hidden from God. He is both the eternal God sitting above the circle of the earth and he's fully man who stepped into the storm of weakness and temptation. Do not say your cause is disregarded. Do not say your way is hidden. That this is an all-knowing, sympathetic friend who is praying. This has fortified me more than any other verse this year. 
in times of greatest darkness and weakness, I've just had to say, Jesus, whether I can sense it or not, I know you're praying for me. I don't even have words to pray right now, but you are praying. Thank you, Lord. I just say, amen. Whatever you're praying, Lord, I say, amen. And at times, the knowledge that he's praying for me has caused me to pray even harder. This is reason to rejoice in this weary world, amen? It's reason to rejoice. We have a friend who's praying for us. And I believe that this can and should make us more sympathetic, more fervently praying friends too. Can I encourage you during this time just to be sympathetic? I am more sympathetic because I went through COVID. I was a bit principled about COVID until I had it. Now, I'm much more sympathetic. And I don't know how you have suffered this year, but allow it to catalyze you to sympathy and allow it to catalyze you to prayer. People need that. They need those two things in spades. No one is just doing great because they've got all the sympathy and all the prayer they need. No, actually, all of us need more sympathy and more prayer. It was my daughter's 18th birthday yesterday. And I took her for her first 18th birthday tattoo. Don't judge me. It wasn't my idea, it was hers. I'm completely against tattoos, but I'm joking. Anyway, we walked into the tattoo parlor. And the man looked at me, there's just one tattoo artist, and he said, I know you. I said, how do you know me? And he said, oh, I've watched your church online. And I've done some artwork on Ryan Melcher and JD. And then he began to tell me his story. He said, I was in a church, I played in bands, and then I lost my marriage. My marriage fell apart. And he said, these guys, their friendship has brought me back to Christ. He said, I'd be part of your church if I didn't live far away. I just thought, sympathetic friendship. It's amazing. God works so powerfully to bring a guy who's broken back to Christ. Isn't that amazing? Never underestimate the power of sympathetic, praying friendship. Melcher, if you are watching from Hawaii, well done, buddy. And Ryan Melcher is a Jewish man who only came to faith about four years ago, and now he's leading others to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Never underestimate the power of sympathetic friendship. Finally, I want us to just reflect on this final verse. Behold your king before him lowly bend. We humbly bend our knee because this vulnerable baby is a king who will return in triumph. In fact, Revelation says that Jesus returns as a warrior on a white horse with King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattooed on his thigh. And we're not to allow this picture of a frail, human, dependent, vulnerable baby to allow us just to freeze frame Jesus and say, oh, that's what you are. I'll come to you when I'm in trouble and then I'll just live my own life. This is a king before whom we get the opportunity to humbly bend our knee. And each of us are actually forced to 
sit on the horns of this dilemma between Herod and the Magi. Because remember to Mary, who carried Jesus, it was prophesied by the, by the angel, this child will cause the toppling of kings from their thrones and will cause the humble to be exalted. And we see a picture of this right here where Herod sat on his throne in arrogance and he was toppled from his throne. We find him wanting to kill Jesus and then dying. And we find the Magi, also royals, bowing their knees and exalted, guided by the Lord in a dream safely back. Actually used for the protection of Jesus, these Magi. Why? Because they bowed their knee. Beloved, you and I, this Advent, are not called to negotiation. Have you found yourself negotiating with Jesus this year? I have. Lord, if you just bring this disease to a close, then. Lord, if you just send me the stimulus check, then. Lord, if you just sort out this terrible mess of meeting outside and inside, and please sort it out, and then. That's not what you do. You don't negotiate with a king. You surrender to a king. And when we feel weak, we find ourselves in negotiation. Lord, if you rescue me, then I'll serve you. I just want to encourage us to stop negotiating with this king and surrender. Because when we surrender to this king, he exalts the humble. And then we don't just approach him when we're in need. We follow him and we discover the beauty of a life lived under the kingship of Jesus, enjoying the kingdom coming. Submit yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of Jesus that he might lift you up in due time. This is a moment to acknowledge our weakness and bow our knee, to bring our gifts, to bring our worship. If we can worship Jesus now in this season, we will worship him in any season. So let's bow and worship. Amen. Amen. Over to you, JD.